Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Against Japanese Podcast. Today, we have Dr. Tatiana Rinkova joining us to talk about her book, Revolution Goes East Imperial Japan and Soviet Communism, and how the Russian Revolution of October 1917 impacted the Japanese ruling class and the Japanese left, respectively. First, we discuss the history of Russo Japanese relations and how members of the Japanese ruling class reacted differently to the Bolshevik Revolution. Some reacted with skepticism and hostility, culminating in the Siberian expedition, which left a lasting historical trauma in the Russian Far East. Others saw opportunities. In recognizing the Soviet Union and pursuing diplomatic relations. The latter was partly influenced by the popularity of Russian literature at the time and by the notion that the revolution will modernize Russia as the Meiji Restoration did Japan and bring it closer to their self image of Japan as more developed and democratic than Russia. However, As the communist movement in Japan gained traction and anti colonial struggles threatened the stability of Japanese imperialism, the anti Soviet faction in the military and the bureaucracy won out, paving the way for intense anti revolutionary repression and the rise of fascism. We then shift our focus towards the left. We discuss how the Bolshevik Revolution inspired Japanese anarchists. Such as Osugi Sakae and Takao Hebe, who were some of the first Japanese radicals to establish contacts with the Communist International. These traveling anarchists were part of the global network of Japanese revolutionaries building solidarity with other Asian revolutionaries through the Comintern and smuggling radical literature into Japan. They saw the Bolshevik Revolution. As an anarchist revolution, and thought of Lenin as an anarchist who wanted to abolish the state and build a classless society. However, as the Bolsheviks sought to consolidate state power and used violence to suppress the anarchists, their views of the revolution soured, culminating in what is known as the anarchist Bolshevik debate, Anaboronso. They became increasingly hostile towards organizational centralization and resorted to individual acts of terrorism. Osugi Sakai went so far as to support the Siberian expedition, and some drifted farther right and became fascists, while others converted to communism and continued to support the revolution. This was the context in which the Communist Party of Japan was founded in 1922. We specifically focus on the legacy of one of its founders, Yamakawa Hitoshi, who co authored the JCP's founding document and later formed the Rono faction of Japanese Marxists. While the previous scholarship on the JCP saw the Comintern document, Supposedly authored by Nikolai Bukharin in 1922 as its founding document, 
Dr. Lin Koba builds on the scholarship of historian Kato Tetsuro, who discovered in a declassified Russian historical archive that what is known as the Bukharin Thesis of 1922, which famously called for the abolition of the emperor system, was actually written in 1924 and did not arrive in Japan until 1928. This makes the 1922 program the JCP's first document and betrays the image of the early JCP as an outsider organization controlled by the Comintern, as well as the claim that the JCP had been anti emperor since its inception. However, her closer look at Yamakawa's thought reveals that Yamakawa adapted the Eurocentric. And developmentalist view of world history, in which Japan was seen as advanced as Western European countries, and hence has more revolutionary potential than its colonies. This view became apparent in the contradictory claim made in the JCP document that states the JCP supports the Korean struggle for independence, but Koreans are too nationalist. And thus ideologically backward. This Japan centric position significantly diverged from the Comintern's later critique of Japan as an imperialist country, as well as the defense of the Soviet Union and support for the Chinese Revolution as its strategic priorities. This view was adopted by the Kozaha Marxists loyal to the Comintern, and as such, Yamakawa did not participate in the Kozaha led reconstitution of the JCP in 1925. Following the reconstitution, the party actively engaged in solidarity work with the Chinese Revolution through the Anti Imperialist League. However, this work was made difficult by the intensified state repression following the passing of the Peace Preservation Law. In 1928, and nearly impossible after the Manchurian incident of 1931. We conclude the interview by discussing the lessons of this history for the left today and the importance of international solidarity. If you like what you hear in this podcast, please support my work by subscribing to my Patreon. Or making one time donations to my GoGet funding page. Your support will be highly appreciated. Without further ado, here is an Against Japanism interview with Dr. Tatiana Linkova. Enjoy.、Um, so, I,、um, I am from Russia. I am、um, ethnically Buryat. It's、um, a Mongol speaking minority in southern Siberia. I went to Moscow State University and、uh, where I began studying、um, Japanese philosophy, Japanese history. And then I got a scholarship to go to Japan and I studied at the University of Tokyo where I completed my master.、Um, and then I went to do my PhD. At the University of California at Berkeley. And、um, I finished in 
And then I went to do, uh, I went to Germany to do uh, my postdoctoral studies as a research fellow. And uh, since 2017, I'm um, at New York University and currently an assistant professor of Japanese history. All right. Thank you so much, Dr. Linkova, uh, mm-hmm. for coming on to the show. Uh, I'm really excited to talk about uh, your book, Revolution Goes East. This book was actually one of the influences on me deciding to start this podcast, sort of got me interested in the history of revolutionary movements in Japan and the impact of the Russian Revolution on Japan. And um, yeah, your book, uh, it's divided into two parts. And the first part is about the impact that this revolution I mean, two revolutions, to be precise, one in February of 1917 and followed by the Bolshevik Revolution of October 1917. And yeah, the first part of your book is about the impact this had on the Japanese ruling class, how those involved in the Japanese state responded to this revolution. Um, So my first question it's about this. How did these uh, revolutionary events in Russia impact the previous relationship between Russia and Japan? And following these events, what were their diplomatic and military strategies following these events? Well, thank you for your kind words. And uh, thank you for reading the book. Actually, that was one of the objective of this book that it would reach a wider audience, not just read in um, by, you know, historians of Japan, but, um, you know, just people outside of the academia. And I wanted to write about the revolution and about socialism and communism, because I didn't see much about this topic in English language. There are many books, as you're aware, probably in Japanese language, about the Japanese left and uh, the interwar period, but not so many recent works on on these important topics. So back to your question about the two revolutions. To answer these questions, and I actually emphasize this point in my book, we need to think about a bigger context, about the whole modern Japan project. You know, what was modern Japan about? What kind of ideas the Japanese ruling elite had about Japan and its past and its future, right? Um, And um, so we need to understand the context of 1917, what was going on. And the first thing, of course, is uh, World War I. Um, World War I that was still ongoing and Japan was on the side of the Allies. This Imperial Russia, Japan actually was one of the main supplier of um, arms to the Russian military, and um, which boosted its own industry uh, during World War One, and it was also one of the main supplier of food to Russia uh, in 1917. Another thing to remember is that after the Russo-Japanese War of 1904-1905, when Russia obviously lost, um, 
there was a set of agreements between Imperial Russia and Imperial Japan, where they sort of mended things and most importantly divided East Asia into the sphere of influences. And um, North Manchuria, as well as Outer Mongolia, were under the Russian sphere of influences. And uh, Southern Manchuria and Korea, obviously, under the Japanese sphere of influence. And uh, that state of affairs satisfied everyone. Another thing um, is that they wanted to make sure that the United States would not interfere into the affairs of East Asia at that point. And so then the, the, all these events happened in Russia, the mismanagement, the big losses in, um, in, the, in the Russian army on the Western Front, uh, all this um, chaos basically in, inside the country. And in February 1917, the Russian Tsar, Nicholas II, abdicated. So the, there were many... Japanese observers, military and civilian, inside Russia. And they followed the events very closely. And um, the first reaction of for the February events was uh, very welcoming. So they welcomed the abdication of the Tsar. They um, had high hopes for Russian modernization because then it would stimulate uh, the war efforts, um, and um, uh, the Japanese media and Japanese public generally sort of supported the, the opposition and uh, were very much against the Romanov dynasty. And the question you have to ask, well, the Japanese, the, Japan was an, an empire and Japan had its own monarchy, and now you see that the monarchy is basically abolished in Russia, and what kind of feelings that the Japanese would have about that. And the answer to that question is that uh, for a long time already, before 1917, it was a common understanding inside Japan that the Romanov dynasty and the, Jap and the Russian monarchy were uh, backward and obsolete and autocratic and feudal. While the Japanese monarchy was very progressive, democratic even, um, and um, and the Japanese emperor was, um, you know, the, he was uh, closer to the British uh, monarch, very progressive monarch, um, than to the Russian Tsar or the German Kaiser. Um, so no one sort of was worried about the abdication of the Tsar and, um, and basically had high hopes for future Russia. So things were changing very fast inside Russia. And uh, by summer of 1917, the Bolshevik party and its leader, Lenin, um, kind of came on the big stage. Um, the Japanese military observers and uh, intelligence uh, reports uh, knew about him. They followed Lenin and the Bolshevik party, uh, you know, proclamations and activities closely. And... Um, the uh, Uchida Kosai, the uh, ambassador to Russia in 1917 and future uh, foreign minister of Japan, he actually predicted before October that most probably Lenin and the Bolshevik party would take power. 
the sort of kind of expected things uh, will go very wrong. Um, and so when the coup happened in late October, 1917, it's sort of surprised, but at the same time didn't surprise the foreign ministry and the intelligence. However, it was a total surprise for the public, the people who didn't, in the government, who didn't follow that close, the events in Russia. And um, of course, the first reaction was uh, kind of loss. Uh, who, who are these people? Who are those? Who are these Bolsheviks? What do they want? And um, um, yeah, so this is a big question <laughs> like, uh, to explain all the all this this um, back and forth um, reaction between Russia between the Japanese who were inside Russia and. Uh, in in Tokyo, um, the Japanese um, already from summer 1917, the government and very importantly the South Siberian, oh, sorry, South Manchurian Railway Company, were were thinking about the opportunities that were opening up in East Asia as the Russian Empire was collapsing as um, the Russian elites and business were preoccupied with the events in the in St. Petersburg and Moscow. Um, eastern part of Russia, the Russian Far East, Siberia, the Russian possessions in, um, in Northern Manchuria, mainly this, the Chinese Eastern Railway, um, those things were sort of left alone. And um, there are many things going on also in the Russian Far East, but basically there is no centralized power in Eastern part of Russia. Um, And the Japanese military and part of the Japanese government saw this as an opportunity to extend the Japanese influence beyond Southern Manchuria into Northern Manchuria and even into the Russian Far East and probably Eastern Siberia up to Lake Baikal. Um, And so from November 1917, um, there are uh, talks in Japan to send troops, Japanese troops into Northern Manchuria to occupy Northern Manchuria, to occupy the the Chinese Eastern Railway and uh, move to Vladivostok. these plans didn't materialize immediately because there was an opposition from the United States and other allies who actually were very worried about the Japanese ambitions. Um, they were worried about Japanese ambitions already for some time since the uh, Japan's victory in the Russo-Japanese War. But now, as there was uh, no power in the region to constrain, because Russia was out of the picture. Um, now the United States and the French and the British also uh, were trying to kind of to check the growing influence and expansion of the Japanese interests in the region. Um, so the military couldn't move much. The Japanese cabinet and um, also refused to act without support from the United States. So this kind of Uncertainty lasted until uh, summer 1918, when finally the United States and its president, Woodrow Wilson, decided to 
intervene into the Russian affairs and start the so-called foreign intervention. So the foreign intervention, when 10 foreign countries send their troops on the Russian territory was actually the first modern military intervention. Um, and the Japanese, uh, of course, participated in that. So the initial agreement was that the troops uh, couldn't, the limit, the, the, the limit of the troops was uh, at 7,000. And um, I think the, the US sent around 7,000 troops, the French like around 1,000 and so on. Um, but the Japanese sent around 70,000 troops to the Russian Far East. And on top of that, they sent more than 60,000, around 66,000 troops to Northern Manchuria. So in total, there were uh, more than 120,000 Japanese troops in Eastern Siberia, the Russian Far East, and Northern Manchuria. So that occupation of the region by the Japanese troops lasted from summer 1918 to um, late fall of 1920. Um, by 1922, the Japanese troops uh, gradually withdrew from the region and um, this whole intervention, um, the Japanese intervention, which lasted in total four years, is called in Japan as the Siberian Expedition, Siberia Shippei, um, and um, it was a big fiasco. So this was the first um, um, reaction by the Japanese elite to the uh, revolutionary events in Russia in 1917. So I think I will stop here. Yeah, like one of the really interesting things about your book, this part of your book is how the state is not a monolithic entity. There is a split inside it, inside the ruling class, and there is no agreement as to what to do with the, these events happening just north of Japan. Mm-hmm. And it was also shifting also, like these opinions, like some of them were initially like, you know, some pro-Russians eventually change their mind or uh, vice versa. So it's really sort of the dynamic process of factional struggle inside the ruling class. And um, also the sort of historical significance as well of uh, Siberian intervention. Um, You know, this was a very violent event and sort of basically military acted on their own and lots of pillaging, rape that really lasted very traumatized the psyche of the russian public the historical memory of the event you know their image of japan and it kind of prefigured what to come right in japan turned to fall out fascism which brings to another interesting aspect of your book is the sort of the the influence of these events on japan's turn to fascism as well like this event itself and the contradiction between what you call dual diplomacy of the the Soviet state. So differentiation between the Soviet state and the Comintern. And, you know, some of the Japanese elites differentiated between them. Like, you know, they thought the diplomacy 
in both Russian side and Japanese side, diplomacy, establishing diplomatic relationship is necessary. But also, yeah, yeah some of the bureaucrats inside the Japanese state thought that, yeah, like Home Ministry, Justice Ministry, they thought saw、uh, revolutionary organizing inside Japan as a threat. And they saw them as influenced by the, the revolution. So, sort of that reaction to that has really shaped the sort of the turn towards fascism on the Japanese side. Like, I think that how you describe it is very interesting to me. Yeah. So, if you just kind of、um, talk a bit more about the elites,、um, so one of the arguments. Of this book、um, is that anti communism in Japan had its own logic and、uh, had its own history. So I wanted to make a difference between, for example, European anti communism or the American anti communism and Japanese anti communism or kind of anti communism in Asia、um, because it had anti communism in Japan in particular had its roots in kind of Longer history of the Russo Japanese relations. Because as, as I start my book in the introduction in chapter four,、uh, one to kind of look back at the history of the, of the Russo Japanese relations, you know, I start like a, just a paragraph actually, but it's、um, I start from the、um, 18th century and I wrote it later, you know, after I completed the book, I wrote chapter one because I realized that without giving this context of longer durée, longer history, The readers will not understand why the elite, some of the elites actually、uh, supported the Bolsheviks, found some, or better, you know, really anti, anti Soviet.、Um, anyway, so the, I, started, I started the book with this, with this kind of context that Russia was or had, had been the closest neighbor. Of Japan, right in the, no- in the north. And、um, as、uh, Russia expanded into the Pacific and East Asia, even since the Tokugawa period, the Japanese considered Russia as this threat, right? As the threat to, to the Japanese sovereignty,、um, to the Japanese borders, to the people that the Japanese、uh, had control over, and specifically the Ainu. Um, there was already in the modern period, there was a, a real sense of crisis and, and、um, even hysteria around the time of the Russo Japanese War、um, that the Russians would occupy the Korean Peninsula. And、um, you know, from the Korean Peninsula, it's so close to reach the Japanese islands. And,、um, and some, you know, Uh, it was not a mainstream idea, but on the margins, you know, people were some nationalists kind of crying that the Russian invasion is coming and、um, they need to you know, fight them off and so on.、Um, so there was that on one hand, Russia was always a threat, and it didn't matter in the 1920s,、uh, even that you know, communist Russia was not imperial Russia for the many Japanese. Among the elites and among the common people, you know, what color was Russia didn't matter. Is it imperial Russia or Soviet Russia? Russia is Russia. Russia is,、um, as one of the generals,、um, I think Ugaki said that Russia 
has always had this habit of invading. Right? Um, this is a bad habit the Russians had. Um, so that was on, on one side. On the other side, and that I also pay a lot of attention to that, since the late 19th century, Russian literature was the most popular foreign literature in Japan. And if you know a little bit about Russian literature of the 19th century, it was very, um, it concerned mainly with social problems, like Shaka Mondai, um, problems of poverty, problems of the rural problem, you know, the, the working class, the you know, people, peasant turned workers in big cities, all this, um, the, the monarchy even, um, the autocracy. And um, as Russia was rapidly modernizing in the 19th century and going through you know, all these kind of ills of rapid capitalist industrialization that were so obvious in Russia, those social ills attracted a lot of attention from Japan that was going through the same development through the same processes and was facing the same ills, right? <laughs> the same problems, um, you know, disintegration of social cohesion, disintegration of the family, of the families, of uh, village communities, and so on. Um, and uh, they read Russian literature and um, Russian revolutionary lit literature um, and uh, absorb and sympathize with a lot of its ideas. And um, one of the main characteristics of Russian literature in the late 19th century was its strong anti-capitalist message and anti-Western message. Like if you read um, someone like Dostoevsky, he um, makes this strong connection between, you know, how West, how Western capitalism uh, sort of destroys the soul and um, the body and communities and so on. Um, and um, so there's anti-Western ideas and anti-capitalist ideas um, found a lot of uh, sympathy among the Japanese commoners and the elite as well. It's very interesting that the Japanese military, you know, noblemen, educated people, they um, they are very, they were fond of the, uh, the Russian literature and Russian revolutionary literature. And um, when the when the revolution happened in inside Russia, um, you know, the Bolshevik proclamations against capitalism, against imperialism, against um, Europe, those anti-Western and anti-capitalist and anti-imperialist, anti-Western imperialist uh, declarations, they um, they were shared, you know, there were um, a lot of Japanese people sympathized with those uh, declarations. Um, so there were these two trends coexisting, contradictory trends, but they were coexisting in Japan in the late 1910s. It's Russia is a threat, communist Russia is a threat because you know, its neighbor, it has these strange ambitions. We don't know what they want. Um, what is this world revolution that Lenin, you know, declares? What is this, but maybe just another, you know, plot for Russian expansion? 
Um, this was on one hand, and the other is like very strong sort of sympathies for Russian revolutionary ideas, literature, and tradition. Um, so when the Siberian intervention failed among the government, and when you know, there, and in the beginning, the, the Japanese elite kind of expected the Bolshevik government to collapse. They didn't expect it to last very long. Um, but the, the Red Army was surprisingly extremely successful, right? And they were uh, winning in the civil war, um, in the Russian civil war. And you know, during these four years, they um, won over more and more territories. Uh, finally, by 1922, uh, when the, Rus the Japanese sort of gave up and left the Russian territory, um, Siberia, all of Siberia and all of the Russian Far East came under the control of the Bolsheviks. So by 1922, the Japanese realized that the Bolshevik government is actually um, is a proper one, <laughs> meaning that they are here to stay, um, that the Soviet state is actually uh, not going away, it's not going to collapse, and they need to somehow deal with that new neighbor, right? Um, new neighbor, remember, Korea, now uh, the Japanese empire has borders with the Soviet state. With the, um, now from 1923, is, uh, uh, the USSR was established. But basically, uh, Korea has borders with the Soviet Union, uh, colonial Korea. Um, Japanese in southern Manchuria and they were northern Manchuria, they are trying to deal. Anyway, so Russia, this, the communists are there and we need to deal with them somehow. They're not going away. We just cannot fight. We tried to fight with them. We lost. Um, and so we need to change our diplomatic direction and try to establish some kind of relations. So these pro-Russian and sort of realist politicians came to power in 1922-23 and they began to advocate for rapprochement with the Soviet Union. And finally in 1925, the convention was signed. Um, the Japan recognized the Soviet Union. Um, there was a, you know, the Russian representative, a Soviet representative in Tokyo. Um, and so on. So some kind of relations were established. So that's about it. So um, this kind of tolerance and um, and acceptance existed um, kind of was a mainstream. What I I wanted to show in my book that was a mainstream in the 1920s among the civilian government. The army was another story, <laughs> and even. Inside the army, as you as you already noted, even the army was not a monolith entity. Inside the army, there were different factions and fractions, sorry. And then these fractions, some of them, and plus there is a navy, which is like another story. <laughs> um, but um, even within the army, there were uh, groups that wanted to continue to fight with the Soviets. Others were saying, we cannot do it, we should not do it. And so, yeah, um, that was also a, a difficult situation. Yeah. Um, okay. To sort of, uh, to to summarize, I, I suppose. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there was a sort of general uh, Russophilia, so to speak, among the broad section of Japanese society, which kind mm -hmm. of 
kind of similar to popularity of like South Korean uh, cinema or like Parasite, um, Squid Game, you know, like it's kind of like anti-capitalist mm-hmm. messaging. And um, yeah, it's kind of uh, uh, ironic that way. But um, yeah, but even the pro-Russian faction or fraction of the ruling elite they weren't for Russia because they liked Russia, right? Or they appreciated Russian culture, really. But they, it, you know, they found opportunities in it, and they, you know, they served sort of it served sort of their self interest, so to speak, right? And, oh yeah, of course, of course. Yeah. It's not that there were like there were the Russophiles among the the Japanese elites were mainly those people who. Um, stayed for some time inside, I mean, in Saint Petersburg or Moscow during the imperial period. So they knew the new people, they knew the culture, and and um, they really appreciated it. And but of course, the when when I say a pro-Russian faction, it means the, the faction, a political faction that wanted to establish diplomatic relations and business relations, economic relations with the Soviet Union, because as as, as they argued that, um, you know, to the military or to this very um, anti-Russian groups, like, look, you tried to fight them for four years, you failed, Um, what what next? (laughs) uh, You cannot continue like that. Um, another thing I didn't mention is that um, since even since the imperial period, the fishery business, the Japanese fishery business had a lot of interest, a lot of investments in the Russian Far East. I mean, it's even now, right? Still going on. Um, and uh, the fishery lobby, they were very powerful in promoting the, the establishment of the relations of, and, and um, um, acknowledging the, the Soviet state. So the fishery business was um, and other like coal mining business. Um, those business groups that were also, you know, they didn't want the conflict to continue. Although they actually sought opportunities like Mitsubishi and Mitsui during the Siberian intervention. They actually moved to, to Siberia. They were um, doing some kind of um, survey um, like thinking about you know what kind of opportunities they can get with the help of the Japanese military. Well, it didn't work out, and they joined the pro-Russian kind of faction. Said, "Let's okay, let's do it peacefully then." If we couldn't do it military, um, so yeah. And about the memory, sorry, I, I wanted to say about the memory of the Japanese intervention in, inside Russia. Um, it's really strong in the eastern part of Russia. It's still the this Russian civil war and the Japanese intervention and the atrocities of the Japanese military during the intervention, that is a, a kind of a very strong local memory. Um, in the Western part of Russia, that was overshadowed by the Nazi occupation, right? The Second World War was just like unimaginable in the scale of violence and brutality, right? I mean, the Japanese were not even close to that. Uh, the, the Japanese were just, incidents that was not mass scale um, in Siberia. Um, but because, so in any sort of national memory of Russia, the, the Second World War is the main event of the, second, of, the, of the 20th century. But locally, 
in the Russian Far East and in Siberia, the memory of, of the Japanese it was, was, was quite strong. And um, and of course, that, that I didn't mention that, in, I didn't go into that in my book, but the border conflicts between the Soviet, the Mongolian and the Japanese armies in the late 1930s, um, that was also big for the, for the local population. One of my relatives was fighting the Japanese in the in 1938 in Noman Han battle. So a lot of yeah, so that that memory of the border conflicts of the late 30s, of the Japanese occupation, that so that there was this, it's different now, of course, but there was sort of this kind of general cultural, I guess, memory that you know the Japanese and imperialists and um, treacherous and so on. Um, yeah. Yeah. I actually didn't know that some of them are uh, enshrined in the Yasukuni. Oh some, yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, the Yas- Yasukuni shrine is since the, the early Meiji period. Right? There are all sorts of. It's not just the officers and soldiers of the Second World War who are enshrined there. They are, I think, from the Russo-Japanese War. Even. Mm-hmm. Okay, so uh, let's move on to the left. Mm. And uh, you uh, mentioned earlier that um, um, some pro-Russian uh, elements in the Japanese ruling class, they saw you know, Russia as backward and sort of uh, kind of exceptionalized Japanese monarchy as more, sort of more benign and more democratic. And whereas like Russian czar is, you know, autocratic and backward um you know which was sort of like a kind of convenient excuse for them to legitimize the japanese monarchy so to speak but some you know some on the left like japanese anarchists didn't see the difference right they took inspiration from the the russian populists and some anarchists like kotok shusui or namba daisuke right they sort of they put that into action and they tried to assassinate. Well, Namba Daisuke did try to assassinate the emperor. And Kotok Shusui was also uh, prosecuted through the high treason incident. So can you talk about how yeah, the Russian Revolution uh, impacted the Japanese anarchists? Uh, so the um, anarchism was the mainstream of the Japanese socialist movement in the late 1910s. And not many people know that, but the Japanese socialism and the movement and socialism as ideas, they had already um, quite a long history, right? The first uh, Japanese Socialist Party was established in 1890s. And um, as you mentioned already, the Kotok Shusui, who was... He said that he was an anarchist, but it's kind of not clear. Did they make big difference between socialism and anarchism at that time? No, there are some scholars who say he was he was not an anarchist, but was a socialist. Um, but those definitions aside, socialist movement in Japan in the 1900s and 1910s was um, was an amazing thing, and. Um, there are so many things written in Japanese about the period and about these people and movements. Um, there are very good works in, in English language as well. 
um, and I see more are coming. Um, but uh, yeah, so it started, it took off as uh, during the Russo-Japanese war as this, you know, as this anti-war move, movement, pacifist movement that were concerned with the social, you know, the, the impact, the war, uh, the imperialism, the Japanese military um, were having on society in general, right? On the values, social values and political values, how society was changing, how the emperor is propped up and in whose name all these bad things were happening inside and outside of Japan. Um, and so when the Russian, so the, the context with the um, Russian populists, these uh, Narodniki, um, were established even before 1917. The, the Japanese uh, rev, uh, Russian revolutionary literature, the socialists, um, the Bakunin, Mikhail Bakunin, one of the fathers of anarchism, he actually spent, I don't know if you knew that, uh, he spent two months in Japan after his escape from a Siberian prison um, and so on. So the, that anarchism became, um, it sort of really took off during World War I. Um, it became very popular among um, uh, industrial workers. Um, the, in 19, since 1918, and especially in 1918, there was a wave of labor strikes um, in big industrial cities in Japan. And uh, those labor strikes were led by um, anarchist workers or um, um, leaders of the labor movement. And the labor union, Japan had uh, one national uh, uh, labor union, uh, but uh, in 1919, a splinter group, you know, uh, some union members organized a splinter group and it was more radical. Um, and uh, had like thousands in, um, in uh, membership. So, and um, anarchism and, and, you know, within even anarchism, there are different, um, different schools. And in Japan, uh, the popular one was anarcho-syndicalism. And um, the tactic of direct action was uh, really appealing to workers because you know it's action is is right now it's immediate um, it's you know occupying the industrial side the factory and demanding you know certain things so that was um, anarchism was the mainstream and the, the anarchists um, were extremely active and they created this network um, they had their own newspapers all around Japan so when um, the Soviets had um, high hopes for Western Europe initially. And, but as the um, socialist revolutions failed or didn't happen in um, Western Europe, and especially in Germany, um, the Soviets kind of turned their attention to Asia and to East Asia. Another thing you have to remember is that until 1922-23, the Soviets did not control the Russian Far East and Siberia. So it had, you know, they were still fighting the Japanese there. So once the Japanese were out of picture, the, the, um, the Soviets began 
contacting the Chinese, the Korean, and um, Japanese radicals. So the Communist International, that which we didn't mention, I think, <laughs> yet in this podcast, uh, the Cominter, the third Communist International, was established in 1919 in Moscow. And um, it had open branches in um, Vladivostok, Irkutsk, and uh, Shanghai. And Shanghai Cominter branch was, you know, the main sort of operational hub main operational office for the radical actions in East Asia. So um, the Soviets began sending Chinese and Korean agents, commenter agents to Tokyo to establish contacts. And when these Korean and Chinese agents came to Tokyo, they were uh, really, I mean, they obviously uh, met with this sort of very well-known Japanese socialist, socialist leaders like Sakai Toshihiko and Yamakawa Hitoshi, um, but they also sought actively contacts with anarchists, Japanese anarchists, because they knew that actually anarchists had wider network and they, had, and they were extremely active on the labor scene. And uh, so the, the order was to recruit anarchists first and to turn them to uh, Communism. And uh, Japan was not obviously an exception that was happening everywhere. Um, anarchism was under uh, was the mainstream of socialist movement everywhere at that time. And um, the kind of nascent communist movement, they were uh, uh, really trying to convert anarchists into communists. Yeah, one of the things that I, I noticed studying the history of communism in Japan that uh, there's so many early uh, radicals who traveled the Soviet Union or have interaction with the, the, the Comintern were anarchists. You know, also Isakai uh, visited, mm-hmm. visited them Shanghai. as well. Shanghai, in Shanghai, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, the, the extent of international network, right? Both uh, East and West and, you know, there's Katayama-sen in the West, mm-hmm. right? In the States mm-hmm. and um yeah sort of internationalism was really uh part of the you know the commentaries you know it was not only the principle of its operation but also like its organizational uh yeah i mean mechanism. all this all japanese known companies like sakai toshiko and uh, yamakawa and even takabaki they were all anarchists they were all um like France or Kotokshusu, and then you have a question like, what is then anarchism with socialism? And yeah, there is a very kind of vague divide between these isms. Um, yeah, and then uh, there was another, um, the Japanese immigrants in North America, uh, they were also, many of them, like Katayama said, many of them immigrated to the United States after the high treason incident when Kotoku Shisui and um, um, this uh, other 11 uh, socialists were uh, executed in January 1911. So they, many of them immigrated to the United States or were converted into radicalism in the United States. And when the revolution happened, you know, there was sort of kind of a lot of excitement, a lot of movements in um, in the United States, in New York, where I am now, 
um, among Japanese immigrants, not only Japanese, like East Asian immigrants in general. But uh, it's amazing, like uh, Trotsky and Kolontai and Bakunin, the, no, sorry, Bakunin, Bukharin, um, Nikolai Bukharin, they were all here in New York State, in New York, and uh, Katayama Sen and other Japanese, they kind of, they met even, they met and talked. Um, and um, Katayama Sen was invited then to Moscow as the representative of the Japanese socialist movement, and then he basically stayed and died in in um in Russia, in Soviet Russia. Um and the, the Japanese immigrants um they uh, in the United States they were a, a very important element of the growing socialist movement in Japan and communist movement. Uh for a long time they were smuggling radical literature through the Pacific to the Japanese islands. Um they were translating stuff um publishing and sending to Japan. So there was this Trans-Pacific also connection. So the connection was, uh, there are two hubs in the United States. It was San Francisco and New York. So from New York, it would go through Europe, through Russia, through the Trans-Siberian that would go to Japan or East Asia. Um, and there was another route is from San Francisco, Trans-Pacific, Hawaii, and then um, Japan. So th there was movement of people and of literature on, on both sides. Um, yeah, so, but um, going to this, back to this uh, traveling anarchists. So yeah, that's true. The, the first Japanese radicals who entered Soviet Russia were anarchists. Um, uh, at the invitation of the, um, of the Soviet um, communists, a group of 1920, I think, 1921, sorry, 1921, winter, um, a group of Japanese anarchists, they entered uh, Russia and um, they stayed in the Siberian town of Chita. Chita is, um, do you know what is Chita? <laughs> oh, I, I didn't know until I read your book. Yeah. So Chita is on the Russo-Soviet-Mongolian border. And that was the headquarter of the Japanese interventionist army. Um, I mean, there was headquarters in Vladivostok, but in Eastern Siberia, it was in Chita. And um, so these uh, guys uh, uh, stayed in Chita. They got a printing device. Um, they rented a house, basement, and in the basement, they began publishing in Japanese um, anti-military and anti, uh, yeah, mainly anti-military and anti-capitalist pamphlets, which they tried to distribute uh, among the Japanese soldiers. Um, however, I think um, they were not successful. Those pamphlets, they um, didn't reach Japanese soldiers, and um, but, uh, you know, they, they stayed there around six or nine months, I remember. Yeah. Because there was a, there groups like, some groups like left to Moscow, then some groups went to Vladivostok, so, a lot of movement yeah 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 um yeah anarchists were very central to the you know they were the conduit between russian communists and japanese communist like a japanese left but um they eventually sort of prominent anarchists just sort of drifted away from communism and there is sort of this divide uh what is often referred to as Anna Borronso, like anarchist Bolshevik debate. 
um, what led to this divide and the sort of overall demise of anarchism as a movement in Japan? So uh, there was a lot of initial, a lot of um, obviously excitement and support for the Russian, for the Bolshevik revolution. Osugi Sakai, one of the most famous probably Japanese anarchists at the time, he was not the only one. I mean, he is very well known in uh, in um, outside of Japan, but he was not the only one, obviously. Um, he was just one of the leaders. Um, and um, so he, there was um, those anarchists slash socialists, they considered the Bolshevik revolution as an anarchist revolution. And why? Because they thought that Lenin actually wanted to abolish the state as an institution, that it will be no state, right? And no state institutions in Russia. This is kind of a totally new world they're gonna build there. And, um, but even then, right, as the dictatorship of the proletariat was announced as the, as the civil war was raging and um, as the Soviets were kind of really ruthless in um, suppressing any dissent and opposition, even then Osugi Sakai famously said that if it was him, he would probably do the same. He would probably establish dictatorship of the proletariat and he would probably use violence as well to, uh, you know, to, to establish the, the anarchist rule. But um, time was going, uh, and so the that's why Osugi actually went to Shanghai. He met with the commenter representative uh, Wojtinski there and other um, Chinese and Korean radicals. Um, he accepted money from the commenter for organizational expenses. Um, but very quickly, so he even um, he didn't join the Japanese Communist Party, but he was very very close. Uh, with them. They were friends. I mean, they were uh, like old friends, um, all very old friends. Um, but then, you know, reports were coming from Russia that uh, the Soviets, the Bolsheviks were actually turning against the anarchists. And, um, you know, the uh, anarchists and um, another faction, the social revolutionaries, um, the terror started inside Russia. Many anarchists and social revolutionaries were killed executed or exiled. That was happening in 1920, 21, 22. And when these reports were coming in that the Bolsheviks actually is building even a, a stronger state than Imperial Russia, that it's even more authoritarian than before, that um, it's extremely bureaucratic. Of course, that turned to disappointment and uh, Osugi Sakai became very active in criticizing the Bolshevik government and even um, not only him, but him and many others, they even supported the Japanese military. Um, they even began to support the Siberian intervention because they thought the Japanese military would be able to crush this new Bolshevik authoritarian uh, military bureaucratic um, state. And um, and so this kind of really um, the anarchists became the most vocal critics of Soviet Bolsheviks. Again, um, anarchism was not a monolith entity, and there were 
um, as an anarchist who actually supported the gov- the the, uh, the Soviet Union, and as I mentioned before, the ones who went to Russia and um, and um, you know stayed in Russia, some of them actually converted to communism. Um, yeah, but uh, this um, in general, the um, Osugi Sakai, of course, was killed uh, in 1923 by the military police. The famous story, right? Um, these other labor leaders and um, um, anarchists, and um, um, there was a 1923 was such a bloody year. Uh, there was the main the counter earthquake, the massacre of the Koreans um, in the aftermath of the earthquake, the murder of Osugi, um, his partner Ito Noe, and other feminist anarchists, his uh, nephew, and um, um, the person who entered, anarchist who entered Russia to Chita, you know, to the lead of that group, Takao Hebe, um, he was murdered by right-wing uh, gang. Um, and those street fights between um, the brown shirts, right? The, the um, right-wing groups that pro- began to proliferate in Japan. Uh, so the fight between these brown shirts and the Japanese, the, um, the anarchists and communists, they became really common and many people were injured or died in those fights in 1923. And um, after that, I, what I uh, show in my book, very cursory, I have to say, it's not a book about anarchists, right? I just devote just one chapter to that. They turned to this uh, kind of direct action tactics. And by this direct action tactics, that was individual terrorism, uh, individual terror tactics, and began you know, killing people like um, Namba Daisuke, um, throwing bombs, and um, and so on. Yeah. So they really distanced themselves, anarchists, after 1923-24, in terms of movement. And people, they distanced themselves from communists. And of course, on the theoretical level, there was this um, Anaboro Ronso, the, the debate between the anarchists and Bolsheviks about the organizational matters. And um, probably you've covered that in your previous podcast. Did you? Uh, no? Not specifically about this, uh, this debate, but um, mm-hmm. actually me and uh, Chelsea Sandy Sheeter talked about this one anarchist feminist who mm. kind of became a fascist um yeah like oh, a, yeah. Yeah. you know you mentioned some of these people as well like basically they renounced class struggle altogether and embraced the nation as a sort of um you know the primary yeah. struggle i suppose and sort of the kind of like idealism about uh, communalism in sort of agrarian mm-hmm. japan Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, that's a sort yeah. of like a, another sort of dark aspect of the history of Japanese left is sort of this rightward drift of uh, former radicals to to become uh, fascist. And I also had Max Ward uh, talking about Tenko process as well. Yeah. So yeah. they know. Yeah, they Max Max Ward is the, the main sort of scholar about that. Um, um, but yeah, so the but Anna Boronso was. Um, it touched upon a fundamental question of the left in general, how the struggle should be organized. And um, the communists, Bolsheviks, 
border, right? Bolshevik. Uh, the Bolsheviks um, argue that by organizing, um, by centralizing, and um, the the movement by uh, having a you know a structure of the movement of um, almost hierarchical structure um, by coordinating. And uh, the the movement is uh, you know the the center and the periphery let's say so and while anarchists of course argue that centralization would be the death of the movement um, that it should be sort of a federation of um, uh, of equal sort of um, each each city should have its own kind of center and. Uh, there should be no overarching um, central organ. Um, there should not be a party, you know, the, that would control the, the actions of this of its members. So yeah, that was about um, that was about mainly organization of the struggle. Right, and um, yeah, for the interest of time, uh, mm-hmm. I'd like to move on to the the uh, you know the communist movement. Uh, and uh, but this ties into sort of the debate within the communist movement as well. There's some overlap between the actually the, the necessity of Vanguard Party mm-hmm. uh, versus sort of workers' organization, a mass organization that's uh, legal and overground. Mm-hmm. Um, and you specifically focus on Yamakawa Hitoshi, uh, who is known to be part of the Ronoha uh, labor farmer faction that uh, which. Uh, we previously talked about with uh, um, Devin Walker as well as with Ken Kawashima this debate. So listeners might listeners who uh, listened to previous episodes might be familiar with this debate. But um, yeah, like you, uh, your focus is on Yamakawa, uh, his his theory, um, and also like you sort of uh, make a contribution, like you sort of provide a new evidence about the. Uh, uh, the JCP stance on the emperor system, as well as their anti-imperialist politics or lack of it, I guess. Um, yeah. So, can you talk about how, um, yeah, how the Russian Revolution impacted the, uh, the Japanese communists, but specifically the thought of uh, Yamakawa Hitoshi? Um. So Yamakawa Hitoshi, right? One of the founding members of the Japanese Communist Party uh, in 1922. Uh, so I, it was kind of, I uh, built on the scholarship of Japanese historian Kato Tetsuro, who found this um, in the Russian archives that were, by the way, classified until 1990. Um, so he went to the declassified archives and found um, the communication between the JCP, the Japanese Communist Party, and the Cominter headquarters in Moscow, and um, so he um, he proved that um, the author of the JCP program and the manifesto of the JCP was Yamakawa Hitoshi. Um, previously, it was um, especially in the English. Uh, scholarship. It was kind of the, the the scholarship was that the program of the JCP was written by the Russians, 
And it proved that the Russians had total control over the Japanese. And it was in a top-down relations that the, the comment term that the, the Japanese party or Japanese communists were just, you know, just blind followers of the Russians. But and um, they even couldn't write their own program, you know, their own manifesto, and they just followed orders from Moscow. That was the kind of mainstream historiography. But the Japanese historian Kato Tetsuro he showed that no, that that that's not actually was not true. Um, the Russians, especially in the 1920s, they um, realized that they really knew very little about Japan. In Japanese history, and um, they they gave a lot of sort of freedom to these um, foreign communist parties in East Asia. There was this kind of Bolshevization of of um, Asian communist parties and sort of obedience to the Comintern orders that happened much later in the 1930s, when Stalin really took you know took over and. Um, um, he he made this this big U-turn uh, in the kind of general course of the Soviet policies. Um, if in the 1920s there was a still hope and still um, sort of actions towards the towards accomplishing world socialist revolutions, and a commenter was the main tool for that. Right, there was a still kind of especially in China that. That would happen. That the revolution would not just stay in Russia, right? It will become a worldwide revolution. Um, so that was the that was the optimism of the 1920s. But then Stalin, by the end of the 20s and the 1930s, he reversed that. And this is important. The Manchurian incident of 1931 is very important for Soviet history as well. Um, then there is a reverse. That okay. So let's forget about the world socialist revolution, let's focus just on the Soviet Union and on building socialism in one country. And all the actions and the uh, policies and you know uh, of the foreign communist parties, the number one objective of the foreign communist parties was not to accomplish revolution at home, but to make sure, like to work for the safety of the Soviet Union. Let's let's say like that. The, the objective was to work for the sake of the Soviet Union. To the anyway, defense so, of the Soviet Union. To defense and this of the Soviet Union. Yes. So that was number one objective of foreign communist parties, including the JCP. Um, so the in the 1920s, the story was different. And um, the foreign communist parties were quite independent, uh, quite robust, uh, and quite um, oppositional, even you can say. They were challenging um, Russian communists, and um, the Japanese were challenging as well. For example, <laughs> there, there was a, in the archives, in the published archives of the commenter, there, there is a letter from Japanese communists to, I think it was Zinoviev. Zinoviev was the head of the Comintern. And in the letters they say, uh, Sano Manabe, actually one of the most famous Japanese communists, he wrote, 
do not listen to Katayama Sen. Katayama Sen hasn't been in Japan since 1914. Like 20, he left this country 15 years ago and he doesn't know the heck what is going on here. And he, he cannot write any policies, any programs for the JCP. Do not listen to him and do not trust him. Um, so they are not they are opposing the commenter very openly, Japanese. Um, so Yamakawa wrote this program. It was approved by the commenter um, leadership. Um, and um, in this uh, program, uh, Yamakawa declared that basically the major revolution was the bourgeois revolution. And um, basically the post-World War I Japan is a, is a bourgeois, um, you know, transition from feudalism is complete. Um, and it's a bourgeois country and um, Japan is, uh, will be ripe soon for a proletarian revolution. So what's expected next? So the, the, the whole policies of the JCP should be uh, kind of geared towards this bringing, uh, you know, accomplishing this, uh, realizing this proletarian revolution in Japan. Yeah. So that was uh, that was Yamakawa's manifesto, and that was the general party line of the JCP in the 1920s. Yeah, and he had a sort of fallout, right? And he was eventually expelled from the party, or actually liquidated the party uh, after the the earthquake of uh, 1923, and which, by the way, was sort of like very world-shattering event for uh, the left in general, anarchists and communists, as well as fascists, um, you know, for the reactionary sort of confirmed their, you know, already reactionary <laughs> politics. But um, for the left, it really led to their sort of, uh, for the communists, it led to the sort of re-evaluation of the, their strategy. And Yamakawa decided to, yeah, liquidate the party and only focus on, you know, they, he thought that there should only be a legal proletarian party. and But he also had this sort of theory, kind of like a form of Eurocentrism, but sort of more like Japan centrism. Like he didn't think that anti-colonial struggle uh, wasn't very important and the struggle inside Japan should be prioritized. Uh, can you talk about that? It was not that Yamakawa alone disbanded the party. No, it was a general decision. It was not mm -hmm. Macabre's yeah. decision. Yeah, yeah. It was a general decision that um, uh, to pause, not even disband the JCP, but the, kind of pause the activities and to reevaluate the um, the strategy of the JCP. So there is another thing. Um, the Yamakawa again. This comes from the archives. Yamakawa kept contact with the commenter well into 1928. Um, so he was in contact with, he was writing to, to Moscow. Um, and even after the, 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 kind of, the JCP reconvened, sort of re, re, was reestablished, uh, but Yamakawa was not part of it, of the second JCP anymore. 
but even though he was not a member of that he was he distanced himself from the um JCP he was still in contact with the with the communists in in Moscow and Shanghai um later on he would deny that he would not he in his memoirs in the post war writings he would not mention that at all but um you know the archives show that he was um, very much part of this international communist movement uh, and discussions so it's kind of a very interesting moment in that mid 1920s in 1925 Strikes in Shanghai led to the Chinese Revolution, right, of the 1920s. And um, there were a lot of communist instigators. And, of course, the Soviets sent their own agents and agitators um, to China. And there was a lot of hope in Moscow that, you know, now it would happen in, in China. Now all the efforts should be there in China. Um, China is next after us. And so they kind of completely side uh, lined the JCP that was not very sort of interesting anymore. I have to say that in 1990-1920, there was a lot of hope as, as the Russians looked at the labor unrest in, um, in Japan, there was some little hope that maybe it would lead to a mass protest and um, maybe some kind of change in the leadership would happen. This kind of pro-socialist maybe government could be established in Japan in 1920. There was this hope for that. But of course, it, it didn't happen. But now China was this sort of star. <laughs> um, and... Um, um, the JCP in the late 1920s, they uh, sort of supported that, you know, the Chinese revolution and that uh, um, the efforts should be, you know, directed at that. But again, the JCP, but there is the part of JCP and there is sort of, we have to make difference be between the communist movement in Japan in general, which was much wider. Uh, and uh, as you said, Yamakawa became one of the leaders of another fraction, Ronoha, the labor, the worker peasant fraction. Um, and um, they uh, were more sort of orthodox Marxists than the Russians. And they really believed in the stages of the development of historical development of, and um, economic development. Um, and um, they didn't think that communist movement in, co in colonial Korea or in China were ready yet, or the, um, that there was enough revolutionary potential or there was enough sort of political consciousness among the colonial Koreans and Chinese to accomplish this socialist revolution and to build a socialist state. They just saw that, you know, they were not there yet. And uh, in terms of development, historical economic development, Japan was actually ahead of them because Japan has already went through a bourgeois revolution and, um, and that, Although it was incomplete, maybe 
uh, you know, there is still this feudal remnants, as they call it, there is still monarchy um, and the strong, like big land, um, the class of land owners and so on. But still, you know, Japan in terms of development was ahead, ahead of China and colonial Korea. And um, therefore it was more ripe Japan was more ripe for a socialist revolution or kind of changes towards that, you know, uh, building pro-socialist government and so on. Um, so that was the one thing. Japan is is kind of closer to that goal. And second, the issue of tactics was and strategy. So uh, Yamakawa and others who were not in the second JCP understood sort of the Russian revolution kind of finally they came up with the interpretation of the Russian revolution. And again, they followed sort of orthodox Marxism in that. As you probably know, um, by all the laws of Marxist development, a socialist revolution couldn't have happened in Russia because Russia, Imperial Russia was a backward country. It was not yet, you know, the, the capitalist contradictions were not, you know, reaching its highest point. And um, so where the revolution would happen, a revolution would happen is maybe, you know, the UK or, or France or maybe even Germany, right? <laughs> but not Russia. Uh, but then it happened. But for the, and for the many also that Marxists around the world, that was abnormal. That was not normal. And of course, now the, the Soviet state building showed that that was a not a normal socialist revolution, that even maybe it should not have happened. And because the people were not ready, the Bolsheviks themselves, and what is this vanguard party? They're just dictators. And, uh, and they are just building the state on blood and violence. And that's not the way to go, right? Um, and so many communists around the world, including Yamakawa and Ronoha, said we, we, want, we want a similar, we, we are kind of moving towards the similar objective, but we are moving using different means and strategy and way. Um, so that was that, like the, the Russian revolution, the Russian communists were uh, not the model to emulate to repeat because Russia itself was backward and whatever was happening in Russia should like, that was not normal. That's not how it should happen everywhere. And second of all, in terms of countries in Asia, there were all much less developed than Japan and much less ready uh, than Japan to, you know, to move forward towards that goal. And so, one of the outcomes or consequences of that thinking, of that thinking that Japan was superior in its development, that the Japanese proletariat was more conscious than Korean proletariat or Chinese proletariat. So one of the consequences of this thinking was um, kind of less rigorous connection with Asian radicals. I think I, 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 that was my conclusion. That was my understanding that 
there was a there was a call there was just the proposals to establish sort of Japanese Korean groups you know kind of have more content more sort of coordinated action with Korean communists or Korean radical groups um but Yamakawa is it, he he was he was openly writing that um in the 1920s he was saying that the Koreans were too nationalists that Korean communists were too nationalists and that um that the main objective was anti-colonial, anti-Japanese, and anti-imperialist. I mean, it's all good, of course. There is no question about that, right? Yamakawa and others were all against Japanese uh, imperialism. Um, but Korean anti-imperialist, anti-colonial struggle was showing that they are too much attached to nationalist cause and to the national goals that their nationalism obstructs their understanding sort of of, of higher understanding of communist goals. And that goal was, it's really contradictory understanding, like they are blaming, the Japanese are blaming Koreans for being too nationalist and not understanding like, you know, the futility of the, of the nation state, right? The con- that that it's another construction, and uh, that the final goal is in you know, internationalist brotherhood, and um, and going beyond nationalism. But the result was that the Japanese Oyamatawa and others they were came also very constrained by this by the national, right? Um, yeah. Yeah, I'd say he was sort of victim of sort of. Yeah, orthodox Marxism, sort of like evolutionary mm-hmm. uh, framework of mm-hmm. understanding world history, I think developed by Plakhanov. Um, Plakhanov? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And uh, somewhat adopted by Stalin as well. And yeah, like this evolution of humanity through stages like primitive, slavery, feudalism, you know. Uh, so, like, I think some communists get too caught up in that and becoming end up sort of be, like becoming like national chauvinist or eurocentric you know in terms of like the communists in the west and you know i think grappling with that question and necessity of anti-colonialism and anti-imperialism is a yeah very uh, an important question and on on that note and sort of close it up um yeah yamakawa is expelled and yeah replaced by sort of the the kozaha uh, sort of win over, so to speak. And he, it's a correction. He was not expelled. He just didn't join. He didn't come. Oh, he didn't. Course, say, yeah, yeah, he didn't participate yeah. in the in the reconstitution of the. Yeah, 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 yeah. He yeah. just said like, I don't want to be part of this. <laughs> yeah, thanks for yeah. pointing that yeah. out. And yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, you wrote a separate article about what happened after, right? And um, uh, sort of anti-imperialist activities that the JCP participated after. Uh, the reconstitution and yeah and you know sort of the the commentary came to sort of different conclusion about japan you know before that oh maybe japan is just like other colonial countries and you know like china but they came to see china and japan as quite separate or different and they came to prioritize china chinese revolution you know before revolution in japan and uh and they participated in this anti-imperialist alliance right japanese communists um can you talk about what type of activities they participated in and what was their position in that the 
the role of Chinese revolution in the world revolution? Uh, the, um, I think it was in 1927, the Anti-Imperialist League was established in Brussels. And um, there were branches established around around the world. And um, in Japan, there was also a um, branch, I think, of Anti-Imperialist League. I'm, I'm, like, I'm trying to not to uh, be too far. <laughs> um, and um, by the way, many of the leadership of this Anti-Imperialist League in Japan were Koreans. Um, and um, so the since the nineteen um, since the mid nineteen twenties, Kozoha the J, and the and the and the reorganized JCP um, followed this the Comintern policy to defend and assist the Chinese Revolution. Um, it was there were so many kind of internal domestic events in Japan that obstructed the actions. I think Max Ward probably talked about the peace preservation law that was enacted in 1925 that you know, prohibited this um, the leftist movement. Um, and in 1928, it was revised, it became even, uh, even more radical, this peace preservation law. Uh, there was a wave of arrests in 1928, many, Japanese communists went into exile. Some of them even moved to Russia, stayed in Moscow. So there was a lot of kind of difficulty. You know, the, the state and the police were kind of accelerating its pressure, um, pressure and suppression of this movement, uh, radical movement, um, by the end of the 1920s. And uh, even then, with this, with this um, the arrests and the difficulties of performing their activities inside Japan and outside Japan in the colonies, things were moving slowly, but they were moving. There were contacts established with the East Asian radical, not only East Asian, Southeast Asian as well. The Vietnamese community was very big in Japan. Um, the Filipino community, the Filipino radicals as well. This is another story someone needs to write about it. There is a big, there is a book by, um, Tim Harper was published this year, uh, Underground Asia. But unfortunately, it's about this, you know, the ra move, radical movements in across uh, South Asia and East Asia in the early 20th century. But he doesn't touch much about Imperial Japan, unfortunately. So it's not, not much there. Um, anyway, so there is a there is this context that being established with the Asian radicals who are inside in the metropolitan Japan and the context established with Chinese and Korean radicals in colonial Korea and uh, mainland China. But, you know, that was the late 20s, the situation was already different from the early 1920s. Um, and um, after the uh, Manchurian incident in 1931, that kind of activities was almost impossible to do. Uh, because the military, the army, as you know, right, they overrun Manchuria, and um, they were very, very concerned uh, with these radicals moving across borders. Um, one of the main, um, not even, probably the main uh, threat of the radicals of this 
Asian radicals for the military was that they're actually not radicals. They're not, I mean, not, not radicals, but they are actually Soviet agents. That was the, that's what they thought. It's not that they're going to build some new world. Who cares about this new world? They are Soviet agents and they are working for the Soviet Union. That's what was communism for the military, for the Japanese military. That's how they understood it. That those communists, forget about their, you know, anti-state and, um, and well, that's not, that was also very important. But for the military, it was mainly about this, that they are spies, that they are agent provocateurs, that they are undermining the military and they are working against the, the, the Japanese you know, imperial project in, in North North Asia. That was the main threat of the radicals. And uh, and then once the military was, you know, determined on establishing, you know, occupational control over North Asia, they were basically hunting now these people. And, um, yeah. I mentioned that, you know, the, there were um, uh, sort of paramilitary groups Organized the volunteers, the sort of you know these very shady people, and um, some of the military guys. They organized these groups on the borders between the Soviet Union and Korea, um, and um, they were just hunting people and uh, you know the um, arresting people. Um, and uh, if they arrested someone, they they would execute them on the spot. Those were just death squads. Um, and um, yeah, so kind of the, since the after 1931, that was already very difficult to do anything. The anti-imperialist league in Korea, oh sorry, in uh, in Tokyo, the office was uh, disbanded. The leaders were arrested. And um, by the way, the comment um, became really really hard on Japan after 1931. There is this famous comment on Caesar's on Japan of 1932, where for the first time, actually, this is one of the points of my book, but again, that was something that Kato Tetsuro discovered, that it was actually only 1932 that the abolition of the monarchy, of the Japanese monarchy, was the main, so it became the main objective of the Japanese communist movement. They became very radical after that. But when you have this abolition of the monarchy, you know, the very foundation of modern Japan as your, you know, poster, <laughs> of course, the, the, the reaction of the police would be immediate. Yeah. Yeah. Um, one more, one last question. What do you think are the lessons of this interaction between the Soviet Union slash or end Comintern and the Japanese left, and so legacies of uh, Japanese anarchism and communism for the left today. I, I didn't. That was not sort of a question that that was not my guiding question. <laughs> let's say when I wrote this book, um, one of the main sort of goal of the book was just to show that. The Japanese left was uh, extremely important for modern Japanese history. That uh, a lot of policies of the interval period were uh, established as a reaction or as an answer 
to the to the revolutionary ideology um, that the left and the leftists, not necessarily communists. You know, there were many people who were not members of the JCP or who, who even didn't think about themselves as communists, but who sympathized and who agreed with a lot of socialist ideas. Let's say socialists, right? Um, leftists. Um, that they were not a marginal group in interwar Japan, that uh, they were a kind of a mainstream of interwar Japanese society. But I was, I was really kind of, what made me think is uh, this um, idea of um, internationalist brotherhood and the way, what is the best, the most effective and possible strategy those people had in the 1920s, right? We cannot judge them. This, you know, it, it was a very hard and very violent time, the 1920s. When people say about the Taisho democracy or the Taisho peaceful years in the 1920s, you know, peaceful, that was not, it's not totally true. 1920s were really very violent. Violence was, the scale of violence was quite big. Um, and so, but this idea of, um, just made me think, and I want people just to think about that, how we can organize and uh, how our, the scale of the organization and, you know, you know the, the priorities and how we can include the minority groups into that, into that struggle and into that organizational structure. And uh, how we can should reconsider the objectives uh, with those, you know, having those minorities kind of prioritizing those minorities, and um, yeah. So yeah, that that I just want to think about this question. I want people to think about this question too. Yeah, I think, and your book overall points to the importance of internationalism, right? Mm-hmm. Sort of the danger of. Even nationalism, among, yeah. Yeah, even among the, the revolutionary left, like nationalism are kind of creeping into them, right? Like uh uh in the theory, like they're they might say they're internationalist, but sort of they get sucked into um I mean for different yeah, reasons. Like uh, you know, you know no personal, one could no yeah. one could escape this framework of nation state. No one could escape this, not not the Soviets, not the Koreans, not the Japanese, definitely not the Chinese. The, the the no one could escape this, you know, this um, kind of the framework of nation state of and nationalism. Yeah, as as Stalin famously said, there is bad nationalism and there is good nationalism, <laughs> and um, and yeah, people operated in those terms. Yeah. But in Asia as well, this is something that I didn't. I mean, I couldn't just touch this in my book. Um, why communism was so popular and was so successful in Asia? Of course, the question of imperialism and colonialism and anti-colonial struggle, and the main, and the, and the Soviets really knew that and exploited that to the maximum. Why communist parties and, and the Soviet Union became so popular there is because they promised their independence, national independence. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's like a it's a true in a way. I think there's difference between nationalism of like colonially oppressed people and nationalism of countries like Japan, and uh, mm-hmm. it's a quite different. Or even like you know American nationalism, kind of 
disguise mm -hmm. white supremacy, right? So I think it's important to draw the distinction. But yeah, but for revolutionaries in Japan, you know, like this legacy of Tenko and sort of common sense idea of like being Japanese and Japanese-ness, this podcast is sort of largely a critique of that notion. And mm -hmm. I think your book really demonstrates that danger that, uh, yeah, like Japanese revolutionaries, many of them couldn't really overcome that. And yeah, even Yamakawa, like he, you know, he adopted mm -hmm. very like a uh, orthodox evolutionary framework yeah. of Marxism that ended up reinforcing the sort of uh, chauvinism, Japanese nationalism. So, um, yeah. 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 Um, so I encourage everyone listening to uh, read Dr. Tatiana Linkova's book, Revolution Goes East, which is available for free. Yeah. As an ebook. So I'll, uh, I'll yeah, be sure I made sure. The... <laughs> yeah. I made sure of that, that it will be available uh, for free. Yeah. yeah, I, uh, yeah, I'll include in the show notes so folks can read it. Uh, thank you so much, Dr. Rinkova. Uh, before you go, maybe can you, you can tell us what you're working on right now and where listeners can find you. So I started the question of minority is something or not even minority. Minority is also, you know, kind of slippery term of um, marginalized groups was sort of very close to my heart. And uh, because I'm a minority, an ethnic minority myself inside Russia. Um, so I was when I was doing research on the Siberian intervention, right, on the Japanese in eastern Siberia and around the Lake Baikal, and it's actually my hometown there, my homeland and from there, and the Japanese, there is still memory and talk about the Japanese there. Um, so when the Japanese were there, they tried to enlist help of Siberian indigenous people, um, Siberian indigenous people, and also the Mongols. And because, you know, Mongols and China is just another crazy story that is going on in the 1920s. As maybe many know, Mongolia was part of the Chinese empire, the Qing empire, and um, outer Mongolia is trying to break away from uh, 1911 when the Qing empire collapsed. And the Republic was established in Outer Mongolia is trying to become, I mean, there was an attempt to become independent. They asked for help from Russia, then a lot of happening. But anyway, so and the Japanese, and so the the when the Japanese are in uh, in northern Manchuria and in um, in eastern Siberia, they're trying to get help from the Mongols. And the Buryats, Buryats, as I mentioned in the beginning of the podcast, are the Mongols, but inside Russia. Um, and um, and they're trying, some of them try to kind of, there are, there are first reiterations of Pan-Asianism and the idea of, you know, this Mongols and the Japanese have shared racial origins, that they're basically almost the same people and we have to help each other. We will help you and uh, to break away from the Russians and from the Chinese um, and to establish the, in, an independent country. And, uh, and there was a lot of attraction from the Mongols to Japan. And this attraction was not because they shared this idea you know, that the Mongols and Japanese have 
the same sort of uh, are, are of the same race. No, no, no. They were very also realist. They knew that Japan has money and they have guns and they have very trained military, and they just wanted the military help to establish an independent state. And so my second project is about that. So um, about the um, early Japanese-Mongolian relations in the 1920s, how Japan is trying to mess, to get, get involved into this messy Chinese-Mongolian relations, how they're trying to kind of formulate pan-Asianist ideas that became very important later, right, in the 1930s, 1940s. Um, but also this is going beyond that. Um, as you know, Outer Mongolia became the first Soviet state after the Soviet Union. Right? Um, the, and um, so I want to look at this kind of two projects of how the Soviet communism won over the Mongols and other kind of indigenous groups in North, North Asia and how they Sovietized those territories. And then I also want to look at the Japanese side, on the other side, the Japanese side, how they are trying to win over the Mongols, right? The same people with their own project, with their own promises of some better future or better independent future. And of course the Soviets are also promising a better, you know, free independent future. And so I want to see at this project, the Soviet project and the Japanese project of a modernized uh, state and, and, and how they're dealing with these different ethnic groups in North Asia. Yeah, thank you so much. I almost made you start another episode. No, no, no. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a, uh, I'm very but... excited about this. Yeah, it's, it's something that um, um, I'm kind of at the beginning of, of this of this project, so I'm really, I can talk about this a lot. <laughs> yeah, I'd love to have you back sometime to talk about it when the project is finished. It sounds really fascinating. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, thank, thank you. you so much uh, again, Dr. Lin Koba, for coming on the show. And uh, yeah, we'll stay in touch. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Against Japanism podcast. Special thanks to my comrade patrons on the Eighth Root Army and Kajaratiers, who are Ruimei, Christy Lin, The Peace Report, Mountain Echo 11, Joma, Drew Harrison, Sean S., Aiden, and Andy. Again, if you like what you hear in this podcast, please support my work by subscribing to my Patreon and or making one-time donations to my GoGet funding page. Both of these pages are linked in my show notes. Thank you everyone and see you next time. Thank you.